friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. Welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today we're talking about What's My Line Part 1, which is really exciting because we are finally getting into the meat of this season. And I mean, I feel like The Dark Age, Halloween, it's the other one, Lie to Me, those episodes have been phenomenal and really good Mm -hmm. and done a really good job of setting up the rest of the season. But I feel like here is where we really start to get the ball rolling with the supervillains like Spike and Drusilla are starting to catch their plan. Um, And Kendra is introduced. Oz and Willow finally meet. You know, like there's just stuff that's starting to come into play and it's just really exciting. There's like other episodes that we've already seen in this season that are phenomenal episodes and really do like set the tone of quality for the episodes in the season. But I feel like this is when we really start to hit the overall theme and plan for the season. Yep. Um, But before we get into the episode, this is the part where we tell you that this is the spoiler-free episode. Normally, we would have the spoiler episode at the end, but we've kind of been changing up our format the past couple of weeks. Next week, we'll be releasing our spoiler episode. This one is going to be spoiler-free only. So don't worry. We will do our best to not give away any spoilers. (laughs) One of these days, something's going to slip through the cracks. I know it, but it will not be this day. Either way. Stick around next week if you guys want to know all things spoilers for how this episode ties into all the other ones. But for now, let's talk about everything to do with What's My Line Part 1. This episode, I feel like, is really – it's just got a lot of stuff going on and it's well-paced. And you see a lot of every character, I feel like. Yeah. And it sets up Part 2 – really, really well. Like, I feel like this episode is very character-driven. There's not a lot of action sequences that are going on, but there's a lot of, like, character building and story building. I mean, we were talking about it beforehand, and I mentioned that, like, when we were taking notes, um, I kept kind of getting lost in the episode and, like, forgetting that I had to take notes, and then I had to be like, oh, shoot, because it just is a it's an episode that just really catches your attention. Like, it was just, like, overall such an enjoyable episode to watch. And there's just so much going on that you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, I want to see more. And the ending of the episode really kind of gave me, like, first season harvest vibes. Oh, the, yes. Like, the way that it ended. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's been so long since we've seen an ending like this. It was definitely way better done than the first episode, but still. I feel like every episode, as Sarah said, had such, like, equally important scenes because like i feel like we get a lot of like either xander episodes or buffy episodes which i enjoy um the latter but (laughs) with this episode i feel like we saw a lot of every character but then it also just kind of like pointed back to buffy at the end which i feel like is a nice little like circle but they've been getting better with their like part two episodes i think is this our second part two episode yeah because i think the first one technically would have been welcome to the hellmouth and then the harvest we're part one part two yeah this is our second it's definitely better than like welcome to the hellmouth where he's like slowly about to bite her in the coffin um (laughs) 
But like part twos, I feel like sometimes can be a little bit rough because they're trying to like split things up and then it can be slow. But they did a good job of like making you excited for the part two in this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading in Nikki Stafford's Bite Me. She talks about how this is one of those satisfying episodes where the diehard viewer is rewarded. And I totally see that. She talks about how this is one of those satisfying episodes where the diehard viewer is rewarded to understand um, like the book that Spike is trying to decipher you know, he, the Dulac manuscripts, it talks about how it was acquired in light of me. Angel asks Buffy to go skating because of the chastisement he received from Willow and Reptile Boy. You also saw them trying to go on a date multiple times. This is like the first mm-hmm. actual date you see. And it's, you know, what we're in the ninth episode. Yeah, the ninth episode of the season. And they're finally going on their first date. And you finally have Oz and Willow meeting. So it's just finally. like, it's one of those episodes that you're just like, oh, things are happening. Like, there's been so much anticipation and build up and that it's just it's super rewarding it's a long time viewer yeah i agree i definitely think it's one of those episodes you're kind of seeing the culmination of things you've been seeing kind of rise throughout the season and it's just very exciting to see where it's heading there's also a lot of like affirmation and the buffy and angel relationship too i feel like we don't get many moments where they're like actually kind of opening up their heart to each other i think it's they know where each other are at and we see a lot of that and like lots of like cute little smoochies but that's like pretty much it so i think like having a little moment where they can have a little bit more of like a heart to heart her kind of reassuring him like you're the one thing in my life that still makes sense to me like we don't get a ton of that in my opinion yeah well and the reviews that i was reading someone made a really good point they talked about how this episode you kind of just get to take a breather from everything you get to Mm -hmm. take a step back you get to just kind of chill with the characters as they live life obviously you have the order of Taraka that's after them but they're kind of like not really in the episode a ton you just have a lot of great like buffy and giles moments buffy and willow and xander moments and then obviously buffy and angel like it's just the episode doesn't drag but it takes a minute to just kind of breathe and let the characters live. And I think that's really important. So season two, episode nine, What's My Line? Part one is based off of a, well, the title is based off of a 1950s TV game show called What's My Line? And they would have a panel of celeb contestants figure out a guest's occupation. And so that's kind of where the title comes from. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, This episode is written by Howard Gordon and Marty Noxon. So this is the first episode that Marty Noxon has ever written and has been introduced in. This is the first and only episode that Howard Gordon writes. Um, But as we will see later, Marty Noxon becomes a pretty big part of the show, becomes a co-producer and eventually a showrunner. And I think she's our first female writer, too. I think – yeah, I think you're right. Yep. So it's just kind of always cool to see other people step in and – like, see how much of a mark they make on Buffy, you know? Marty Noxon, when she was interviewed, I think we talked about this before, but in case we hadn't, when she was in an interview by Joss, he asked her, what can you bring to the Buffyverse? And she said, pain. <laughs> so let that be your forewarning that Marty yeah. Noxon likes to bring pain she to the Buffyverse. She definitely upheld her promise. That's yes. about all we can tell you. She's a very good writer when it comes to characters and um, their interpersonal relationships and stuff. She's really good at writing drama. 
So the director, David Solomon, I want to talk about him for a minute. He wasn't actually supposed to direct this episode initially, um, but the original director dropped out last minute and he was very excited to do it. This is his directorial debut for Buffy, at least. He says that this is the most special moment he had ever had on Buffy was when he got to direct this episode. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. Well, it's even sweeter when you find out who he is. So David Solomon is a co-executive producer and is in charge of post-production. So all of the things that happen in the film after it's shot, he's in charge of. Sound effects, special effects, mixing the sound. Yeah. He also directs all the second unit. So second unit is generally sequences where the main actors are not used. So if you see like a fight sequence between somebody who's not Buffy and Buffy's not in the shot, he usually is directing those in every single episode, which is a lot of work. That's a pretty important role. Yeah. Not only that, he's also in charge of the inserts, which is like the shots where you see someone's hand opening a book or like, you know, something like that, a computer screen. He's in charge of shooting those. Um, He used a computer program called Avid. It's a Mac software editing program, and it allowed him to edit pretty fast. And because of this, Joss Whedon was able to oversee and look at his edits before they were having to air them so they could go back and do reshoots and stuff. And because of this, Joss was able to be heavily involved and make changes. Dang, sounds like they really helped each other. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is really important because like we've talked about before, obviously with everything going on with Joss, we really want to highlight the people that do all this work behind the scenes apart from Joss. And as we can see going forward, there are so many people heavily involved with this show that poured their heart and soul into it. So David Solomon has a degree in biology from UCLA. He started out as an editor for TV shows and movies. He did Hill Street Blues, the pilot for Miami Vice, and then directed Matlock, Loose Cannons, and a few other TV shows. Um, And that's actually how he met Joss Whedon. 20th Century Fox, a producer, put them together when Joss needed someone to edit the 20-minute presentation that they went and showed around town to get people to pick up Buffy. So he's the guy that like edited that. Um, And he loved it so much, he decided to jump onto the show and start editing all of the episodes, which is really cool. The interviewer asked him if working on all the tiny details of Buffy, like that would be incredibly monotonous. He was like, does that take away from the magic of the show? And David Solomon said, no, I watch Buffy at home if possible. And I watch just like everyone else. I rarely take a tape home. I watch it while it's being aired with the commercials and everything. I really enjoy it. Isn't that so cute? So he was a fan of the show too. That's really sweet. Yeah, for someone who has to sit there and figure out sound effects and music and all that stuff, like, I would be so sick of that episode. But no, once it's submitted, he goes home and watches it when it airs. Like, isn't that really cool? I just love hearing about, like, people who worked on some of, like, my favorite shows or movies, like, hearing that they are themselves fans of the work that they helped create. Yeah, absolutely. And the more I read about the people that worked on Buffy, the more I see just how passionate they were about it and how excited they were about the story they were telling. And it just, it shows that's why Buffy's so great because the people who did lighting really cared about telling a story. The people who did the sets, the sounds, like it wasn't just a job to them. It was a passion project, which is really special and unique. Okay. So that's enough of that. Let us start off with the opening sequence, the school cafeteria. So Marty Noxon had a director's, what is, what is it called? Commentary? Yeah, director's commentary of this. And so there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that she filled in gaps with. And one of those is that 
they are actually still filming in a warehouse at this point. So all these sets that we see in the school are in a warehouse. Isn't that oh, crazy? shoot. Huh. You literally can't even tell. No. She said that they actually, the warehouses are right next to the writer's offices, which you normally don't have that. And because of this, that means that the writers can walk down onto set at any point and they get to like sit and watch their words being spoken by the actors and it coming to life, which is really Dang. cool. That'd be so cool. Yeah. Like how rewarding is that, right? So we open up in the school cafeteria, I think is what it's called. It's like the common area. I don't even know at this point. Um, I think it would just be the hallway because they're not like... It's like a lounge. I don't I don't think it's the cafeteria because they don't have like any benches or any... I think it would just be the... I, actually, I don't really know what it would <laughs> yeah, be. Yeah. Well, because I've seen this mural on the wall in what I thought was the cafeteria, but I don't know. Either way, it's like a common area area. <laughs> common area. Okay. Common area. <laughs> it's in a common area, and we see that the career fair is going to start the next day. Did you guys ever do career fair during your high school yeah. years? Shoot. Well, not high I school, but in college. Do you guys remember what you got? We didn't. For, okay, I for didn't me, we didn't do like career fair, whereas like you take it to. Honestly, I feel like that would have been helpful. But like we didn't do that. It was literally just like a bunch of colleges mm -hmm. or military or things like that set up little booths in the gym. And then for like pretty much half the day, like people would just come in and talk to different people in different professions and just kind of like pick their brain on what it was like. And then you just went to the booths of the profession that interested in you. That's so boring. Okay, you guys want to know what yep. I did? Because it was so fun. It's literally like my favorite day of high school ever. So this guy comes in and he gives us all these like, he's like tablet things. I don't even remember what they were, but they he gave them to us. And then he had a big screen uh, up on the, the back where the teacher had the whiteboard. And he goes, okay, so you guys are all going to take a quiz, like a test. It's like a personality test, basically. And he was like, and then it's going to match you into your career or like what you would be good at and stuff. And you all got to make like little avatars and stuff and then it would dress up your avatar based upon like what career you got it was like really fun and then afterwards he would show everybody's results up on the big screen and you could like see who got like the majority of like i don't know i can't even remember now who got police officer who got you know all those other what did ones you and get? stuff i got fbi agent yeah of course <laughs> what <laughs> yeah fbi agent and detective and I don't remember what the other – I think it was, like, astronaut or something. I don't remember. But, yeah. Isn't that astronaut. weird? Astronaut. I could see FBI agent. Yeah. It's just because I like mysteries and analyzing things in case yeah. the listeners couldn't tell. It's it's all the uh, Nancy Drew games you played growing yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Seriously. But it was so fun. It would have been helpful to take a test, but we literally just had the booths. Yeah, I was so then, freaking boring. And I was just bored, so I was like, why would I just go and talk to people? I just would, like, just talk to my friends. Because I was like, what's yep. the point? I will say, though, it was, like, a full day of getting out of classes, so. I guess that's I enjoyed a win. That part. You got, like, free stuff. Like, they would give you, like, stickers or pens. Some, some places would give you candy. So wow. we would go to those booths, like, multiple times. <laughs> You're like, I'm really interested in a horticulturist. Yeah. I'm like, I want to be a florist for sure. Can you give me a bouquet, please? <laughs> You're like, I like shrubs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Willow looks adorable in braids and her little outfit there. She just looks so sunny and cheerful. I really... Her, all mm -hmm. of her outfits, hers and Buffy's outfits in this, every single one of them is so cute. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really loving Willow's just perky and happy 
personality is just shining through her outfits. Um, Xander and Buffy are taking their career tests and Willow's like, well, we're not going to be young forever. And Xander's like, yes, but always be stupid. And then there's like crickets. And he's like, okay, let's not all rush to disagree. I know that part made me laugh. (laughs) And Buffy's like, you're not stupid. And I really appreciated that she said that like, not to just placate him, but she was very sincere in what she said. And I thought that that was really sweet. I think it's because she could tell he was genuinely being insecure about it like not in an unhealthy way but like he, this is something of a genuine place of insecurity that he like is legitimately like unintelligent and so i like that instead of taking the opportunity to like make fun of him or like belittle him she like takes every opportunity to affirm him and just be like listen like no you're fine like i don't know it just it was a very sweet moment yeah, he doesn't strike me as a college dude. I feel like he's not, like, eagerly awaiting his results so he can see what his major is going to be in college. Yeah, and like we've talked before, I think Xander uses humor as a mask for insecurity or when he's feeling, like, unsure about things. And so I think that we've seen he's not a very good test taker. He's not very good in class. He's, like, not, like, book smart, I will say. And so I think that he's probably worried because now everybody's going to see what job he gets based upon his intelligence, which yeah. I relate with that because I was not book smart either, you know? That would be definitely stressful, like, knowing everyone can see your results. Like, Yeah, I know. Yeah. That'd be a little embarrassing. And then Cordelia comes by. Do you notice how Xander's head just kind of snaps up as soon as he hears Cordelia's voice? And I gotta say, Cordelia's looking super 90s fashionista. So cute. Did you notice that Cordelia's outfit in this scene and then an outfit that Buffy wears a little bit like later in the episode are very similar to each other? Oh, you mean like the miniskirt that Buffy wears? It's the miniskirt and then they both wear this shirt. Cordelia's is black and has kind of like brownish stripes i think and then buffy wears a mini skirt and has a brown shirt with black stripes so it's like their their outfits are like kind of mirrors of each other that's interesting yeah i know i hadn't thought about that before yeah but she's looking so cute she's got like the tights with the black mini skirt with like the slit up the side so Mm -hmm. so cute she looks really good and she's also got bangs which not many people can pull off bangs but charisma carpenter Definitely yep. does. And this is coming from someone who had bangs and shouldn't have. So. Yeah, same here. Seriously. She could do anything and look good. And I looked good with bangs, so. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, I think the key is not cutting them too thick. You have to have bangs that are not like. I don't know. I had them pretty bangs. thin and they look terrible. Oh, well. See, I kind of had to have them a little bit thicker because if they got greasy, it looked really gross and you can hide them more with a little bit thicker bangs. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Tips and tricks, you guys. Yeah. All the guys are there like, skip, moving on past (laughs) the wardrobe. Although one more comment I will make on wardrobe. So I forget the lady. I really should have looked up her name. The gal who does the wardrobe for the show, every single piece of clothing on the show she got for $45 or less. She never went over $45. And she would go to consignment shops and for most of the pieces. Isn't that crazy? Wait, every single wardrobe ever? In the show? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm picturing a few of them and I don't think that they're $45. Yeah, everything is $45 or less. She never went over $45. In the entire series? In the entire series. I don't believe that. 
<laughs> you are free to fact check and look it up. But yeah, they had they had a very small budget. They are not going to go blow it on wardrobe. Um, and wardrobe is one of those places. They live in LA for Pete's sake. Like it would be not that hard to go to a really nice well, consignment shop. Well, and clothes shop. was cheaper back then. Yeah. I mean – Clothes were cheaper and that was. Yeah. They had to spend so much money on um, CGI effects that they need to conserve when it came to the clothing. But Buffy is only taking the test because Snyder is making her and Willow asks if she's not at all curious to know what job she would have had. And I mean, Willow is not at all being insensitive here, but I totally understand the way that Buffy is feeling in this moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Willow's choice of wordage is not bad. It's accurate. It's very accurate, but it definitely like it's understandable why it rubs Buffy the wrong way. Um, and Buffy shuts her down pretty fast and says, do the words sealed in fate ring any bells for you, Will? Why go there? And I thought that was interesting that she says that her future is pretty much a non-issue. And I always took that to mean like, I don't have a future because I'm a slayer. But I think what she's actually saying, like between the lines, I don't have a future because slayers die young. And I was like, ooh. Yeah, well, and we all know that Buffy's already very much aware of the fact that slayers kind of have a death wish. Yeah, exactly. I didn't view it like that. That's really interesting. I think it's kind of a double meaning. It's like either A, she dies, doesn't have to worry about her future, or B, she does grow old, but her primary job will always be a slayer. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what her career choice is. Well, and could you imagine being like, I'm the only slayer. If I ever get to the point where I cannot, like you get too old to where your powers just aren't really helping you out very much because you have back problems or knee pain or whatever. Like, I don't know. It'd be really tempting to think, man, would it be better if I was dead so a younger slayer could rise and do a better job of fighting evil? Yeah. And I don't think that they've ever gotten to that issue because they've always died before then. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like what a sucky life and future to look forward to. So then we have an excellent transition because Buffy's talking about her future. And then we go to Drusilla, who's literally using tarot cards to read the future. (sighs) And Mm -hmm. I mean, this show is just amazing. We keep saying it, but their transitions are so good. They're just very smooth. Yep. And she sings, I hear music and there's no one there. All night long, I seem to walk on air. I wonder why. I wonder why. So So creepy. creepy. (laughs) Yep. And we have that creepy like music box music that mm-hmm. we hear every time Drusilla comes in and Spike is making a bespectacled vampire translate the Dulac manuscripts that he stole from Giles. And interesting fact that Marty pointed out, the tarot cards were actually like they were real tarot cards that the prop team altered and made to look exactly like what she needed for hmm. the um mm-hmm. the Order of Taraka and stuff. And she said it was so crazy as a writer to be like, you write something and then three days later, the set team comes up to you and says, hey, are these what you were looking for? And made something that like you made out of your imagination come to life. And she says it's That's like crazy. the most rewarding thing. The what's his name? Dalton. Yeah, Dalton, Dalton is not yeah. translating well. And Spike's like debase the beef canoe. And then he just like, then Dalton's looking at him like expectedly, like maybe this is it. And Spike hits him and says, "Why does that strike me as not right?" <laughs> I I think that this scene is very interesting to me. Pretty much every scene with Drew and Spike is interesting to me, but like this one in particular, it just like the contrast, and we've seen it before, but the contrast between how Spike treats anyone else and Drew. 
is like worlds apart. Mm-hmm. And I and it's so crazy because like you find yourself being like, oh, like he's so sweet to her, even though he's like asking if he can kill someone. Like it's just <laughs> like it's very interesting to me. Yeah, it's really crazy because you watch them and you can't take your eyes off of them. Like Drew and Spike really love each other and mm-hmm. it goes against everything that Giles has told us about vampires, what the show has told us about vampires. Um, and it's interesting too because Dalton kind of lets his guard down whenever Drusilla is being really kind to Spike and vice versa because it's almost like he forgets that Spike's going to like go over there and beat him and then, yeah. you know. I was going to say, I also noticed that towards the end of this clip, like there's this music that plays. Yes. And it sounds exactly like how music sounds in Batman films when they have Joker and Harley Quinn. Like it's very like crazy and circusy. And I know it's because I literally used to be obsessed with watching like old Batman cartoons and movies and all that. And so like I became very familiar with the kind of like motifs and music they would use. And it was always like a version of songs that sounded like this. And you kind of watch like Spike and Drusilla and it's very similar to like a joker harley quinn dynamic Hmm. well like he gets angry and then he like immediately is like oh i'm sorry like i I didn't meet it or whatever which i feel like i mean they're a lesser way lesser version of like harley quinn and the joker because he literally would beat her and then be like oh i'm i'm sorry i love you blah blah blah. but like the script is really interesting because it kind of goes into detail of like spike's character and how he goes back and forth between his evil side and then really caring for drusilla like he has her like like start walking away and then she almost falls and he like rushes like help her and then it says in the script that he can't even look at her bruises because he like he can't stand seeing her weak which is really interesting yeah i those are all really good points because I mean, Drusilla, she asks Spike to come dance with her and he snaps at her. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I see what you're saying about like the Harley Quinn Joker relationship, but I don't quite see it with Drew and Spike because I see Spike being incredibly kind Mm -hmm. and tender with Drusilla. Yeah, it's definitely a healthier, which is ironic, but it's a very much healthier version of what the relationship between Joker and Harley would be. Yeah, but I think it's interesting watching Spike snap at Drusilla and then he apologizes and then we saw Buffy snap at Willow and then apologize and it's because both of them have something on their minds that's bothering them about the future which I thought was just like an interesting parallel but Spike immediately um, apologizes and he goes into how the Dulac manuscripts hold the cure for Drusilla which is the first we've heard of that and Drusilla moans and holds her head and Spike holds her and begs her to forgive him And it's reinforcing that his motivation for everything that he's doing with the Slayer is not necessarily because he's like, ooh, I want to defeat the Slayer for my ego, even though I think that's the act that he puts on. It's because he truly cares about Drusilla and wants her to be better. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the human side of him coming out, like if if we can even say human side. But I think that there are actual human emotions coming out of Spike. I wish we knew what happened to her to make her kind of weak. There was a mob in Prague that beat her almost to death. And so, yeah, other than that, we don't really understand what it, they don't really explain what it is that's. I wonder if it's her. like a curse or something like that, because that's the only thing that would really make sense. Yeah, or if a vampire can get like so weakened to the point where they could possibly like die or spontaneously dust. I don't know. It's just very vague. But it's just this moment is just precious because as he's holding her, 
you see him kind of break down. Like he's like about to cry. And then he's like, Slayer just keeps messing things up. He's like, I just want you better. And he talks about how they're running out of time. And Drusilla like soothes him and reassures him. And he like, the kiss that he gives her is very tender and passionate. And it's almost like he draws strength from her because as soon as she kisses him, he like gets back up and goes right back to Dalton. And I think that like, again, they almost are the healthiest relationship in the show for being so evil because they really like are very kind. And I don't want to say good for each other because they both spur each other on to do bad things. But like, I don't know. It's They're definitely just- a very like conflicting relationship because you're like, wait, they're really nice, but they're, like, also killing people. Yeah, exactly. For an evil couple, they definitely are healthy. There you, you could, go. <laughs> you can say they encourage each other to do the best they can in killing people, so. <laughs> there you go. No, but, like, it's just really interesting, and this moment is so important because you're watching them, and you're almost, like, rooting for them, and then you're yeah. like, oh, right, puppy. <laughs> yep. Um, and you almost feel sorry for them, too. You're like, oh, man, I want Drusilla to get better. Like, yeah. You're like, man, Buffy, can- why are you stopping them? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So he goes back to Dalton, who doesn't think it's a language. And then he's like, then make it a language. Isn't that what a transcriber does? And then Drusilla tells him that reading her cards tells her that the book is in code and she needs a key and then shows him a picture of a crypt. Um, and then, like he said earlier, Leah, when the music swells as he picks her up and spins her around, the music is actually a much stronger variation of Drew's theme, implying that they have indeed found the cure, kind of like saying, hey, Drusilla is going to become stronger and stuff. So then we see the cemetery and Buffy's patrolling. Okay, so this cemetery, we've talked about before how it's man-made, but Marty Noxon kind of gave a little bit more detail. So um, this is technically a parking lot that they made into a graveyard. And it's actually set on patches of grass between the actor trailers and the parking area. And so they had to like be very strategic with the cameras and find places where you wouldn't see trailers or like buildings or the same wall 15 million times. Mm -hmm. The headstones are made out of styrofoam, including the crypt. That crypt is made out of styrofoam. Weird. Well, it's so crazy because, like, I've seen this show so many times, but, like, even though I know, like, certain things about it, like, that most of it is, like, a obvious set, and sometimes you can pretty much tell, but then there's other times where I'm really, like, I would have never in a million years thought this was a set. Mm-hmm. And she said some of the grass isn't even real. They just roll it out into the parking lot to make it look like a real graveyard. Isn't that weird? That's crazy. Yeah. She says the whole entire graveyard is not even the size of a city block. And they have, like, sets to make it into a park. Like, from Lie to Me, we saw that play set and stuff. Um, So Buffy's patrolling, hears hammering in the crypt, sees Dalton. And I love that she, like, closes the door and walks right back out. And you see her face, like, what is he doing? And then she just sits there with her arms crossed and waits for him to come out. (laughs) I was going to say, like, the lighting in this scene was so, like, pretty. Like, Mm -hmm. her looking in the crypt and then, like, the light shining on her face. Like, it was a very cool shot. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. The vamp tries to sneak up behind Buffy, but she stakes him rather quickly, and then Delta disappears as Buffy finishes. And then we have this precious scene in Buffy's room. Oh my gosh. I know. So sweet. It's so cute. Angel's pacing around her room, which I gotta say, he looks so out of place in her I very know. girly he looks room. So uncomfortable. <laughs> 
I just like I found it really funny how he was like snooping in her stuff and then when she comes in he's like holding her little pig. I thought that was cute too because he didn't know she was coming in. The fact that he just was like nonchalant like holding it and didn't even really notice. He was just kind of snooping around holding Mr. Gordo. So cute. I know. It's like such a like weird juxtaposition of the stuffed animal and then the really scary vampire. (laughs) I also thought it was interesting how we get kind of like almost back-to-back scenes of Spike and Drew and Willow, not Willow, (laughs) uh, Buffy and Angel like together. And I think it's like wanting to show kind of like how both of them are motivated in a way by love. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just like really sweet to see the interaction between Angel and Buffy and just how like he immediately notices that she's off and like Mm -hmm. she opens up and is like talking to him and like it's just such a sweet scene. Yeah, it's really it's really precious. Marty Noxon says that she wrote in the gag of Buffy scaring Angel because Angel's always creeping up and scaring Buffy. But she forgot that Joyce was out of town when she had written that in the script. And so they were on set. And then she realized that it made no sense for Buffy to be creeping in the window with Joyce out of town. So they had to write in where Angel's like, I thought your mom was out of town. And then he's like, why are you still climbing through the window? (laughs) It makes sense, though. Yeah, no, it does. Well, because she's like, oh, it's habit. And I would totally believe that. They did a good job of making you buy it. Like, it makes sense for sure. But it's just funny how Marty was like, I loved that joke so much. I didn't want to write it out. So they had to like sit on set and figure out a way to make it work. (laughs) But Mr. Gordo is named after a 1994 movie about a pig named Gordy who was trying to save his family from becoming pork. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know why that thought that was funny, but it is. Anyway. So Angel says that he has a bad feeling, and I think that's really interesting. He said that in light to me, and he was correct. Yeah, yeah, which I think shows that his connection to Buffy is really strong. Mm-hmm. But I think more than that, it also shows a connection to Drusilla, because we know that Angel has sired Drusilla, and like they've talked about how like Angel's blood is what is going to save Drusilla. And so I wonder if there's even a bond between Drusilla and Angel to the point where like he can kind of sense things i don't know i wouldn't be surprised yeah so buffy snaps at angel and he's kind of hurt and he turns the leaf he doesn't even try to argue back he just walks away and to buffy's credit she immediately apologizes and says that she's been cranky all day which i thought was really big of her um and then he asks her what's bothering her and i was like this is a really healthy way to deal with that i really appreciate the maturity he doesn't like hold it against her anything he just is more concerned that she's okay Yeah. I think that she just wants to separate her boyfriend from her, like, death-centered life. And so when he's always the bearer of bad news, she's just like, man, like, why can't I just, like, have, like, a normal relationship? Why can't my boyfriend just come over just to hang out rather than being like, you're in mortal danger? And I think especially, like, the concept of her future and just kind of being bummed out about that, I think it's kind of like the icing on the cake when your boyfriend just comes to tell you, like, oh, you're in more danger. And she's just like, man, like... I just, I don't know, one of those things that just reminds her she doesn't have a normal life. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point, Tabby. So Angel knows it's career week and she's like, how do you know that? And he's like, I learned. I (laughs) I love that line. I thought that was the sweetest thing. It's like, he just like is checking in on her. Yeah, I like that he's invested in her life. You know, it's really unselfish and it's really sweet. Um, and then Buffy says, it's a whole week of what's my line, only I don't get to play. And I'm so sad. And then she sits on the bed and says, sometimes I just want. And then he sits down next to her and says, want what? 
And then she looks at the mirror across from her, which this is just a beautiful yeah. shot. It's just it's crazy. You can't see Angel's reflection, and it's it's just full you can of metaphor. Tell what she's feeling when you look mm-hmm. when she looks at the mirror. It's like we already know what she's gonna say. Yeah, and I mean we know from the opening sequence where it says um, she alone will bear the Slayer powers or whatever. I can't remember the actual words, but you know it's like one girl in all the world. And I think that this is. Angel is a physical representation of what Buffy wants but can't have. He represents a normal life. And him missing in the mirror seems to hint that both he and a normal life are not in her future. And it also just to show Buffy's aloneness. Um, it's interesting that the writers and directors use mirrors in Buffy's rooms a lot to kind of show the duality of her life. Do you guys remember in School Hard when Buffy looks into the mirror after her mom's like, you'll understand one day when you have a job. Mm -hmm. And then Buffy looks in the mirror and says, I have a job. I think it's interesting how they use that a lot to kind of show like the duality of Buffy's life, Slayer and girl. Um, Buffy says, I want a normal life like I had before. And I I think we forget that Buffy actually had a normal life at one point. Well, we don't see that. Yeah. yeah, we've and never I seen it. The whole interaction between them two was so sweet because, like, his immediate feeling is like, oh, shoot, like, it's it's my fault. Like, I'm not able to give her the normal life she wants. And then she's, like, quick to affirm him. And she says, like, you're the only thing in my crazy life, right? Freaky Yeah, she's world. like, you're the only thing in my freaky world that makes sense. And it's just, like, very sweet. Like, ugh. Yeah, and I love that she says, I just get messed sometimes. I wish we could be regular kids. Like, she's lumping him in that, too, because she recognizes that just as much as she's hurting and as much as she wants a normal life, he equally wants one as well, which is, again, I I love the parallels that they have with Buffy and Angel and how they complement each other and that when you see Angel struggling with something, Buffy's usually struggling with the same thing, just in a different way. And Angel says, I'll never be a regular kid. I'll never be a real boy. I know, that's what I thought about too. <laughs> and Bobby says, okay then, a regular kid and her cradle-robbing creature of the night boyfriend. Yeah. And then Angel laughs, which I think this is like the first time I've mm-hmm. seen him genuinely laugh. And it was really sweet. I think she was like trying to like kind of make it a lighter moment after like he, you could tell he was being a little bit insecure in, in the conversation because I don't think she was being very – she wasn't doing a very good job of um, explaining in a way that didn't make it seem like she was blaming him for what was going on, especially in the script. Like there's a lot of like little like comments about like, Oh, angel reacts, can't hide his hurt. And like Buffy like notices that he feels insecure. So she tries to affirm him. Mm -hmm. So I think this part right here, she's trying to have like little comic relief. And I like the fact that he like caught on and then just like laughed. And I also just think like she is able to like, help him let his guard down a little bit when he's around her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then Angel picks up a picture of Buffy skating as a little girl, which I am fairly certain this is an actual picture of Sarah Michelle Gellar as a kid. <laughs> I was about to ask, wasn't she a figure skater? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. There's no actual record of how far she went into figure skating, but Marty Noxon said, as far as she knows, like Sarah got far enough that there was costumes involved. So, and she does all her own skating in this episode, and clearly yeah, she's could, good enough. See. Yeah. Yeah. So Buffy was obsessed with Dorothy Hamill. Her parents were fighting and skating was her escape. 
And an angel asks when she put on her skates last and says, there's a rink closed on Tuesdays. And Poppy's like, tomorrow's Tuesday. And he says, I know, with a very self-satisfied smirk. And it's just so precious. I also I love just it. thought it was sweet that like Angel like is recognizing that like Buffy needs time away and she needs time to like decompress and stuff. And so I think it's sweet that he's like, let's go do something to like take your mind off it. It's just, it's very much like boyfriend material like that's just what they do is like very sweet and like reassuring and stuff and again we don't get their dating life or like any sort of normalcy in their relationship ever on screen like they had that one time in halloween where they're gonna have coffee but then like since then we haven't seen anything they just we see them like in like normal passing and in graveyards and things like that but we don't see them actually like look like a couple so having a scene like this in this episode where like they're on like the skating rink i know we're, we're not there yet but it's like so sweet because i'm like oh my gosh like we never get this with them too and it makes me so happy when we do yeah the show does a really good job it could very easily veer into them constantly having conversations of oh we can't be together oh we're not real people and it can become very melodramatic over time to where we're like, we get it. You're not real boys and girls. Like, move on with the story. But I think they do a really good job of acknowledging that and having moments like this, sometimes in almost every episode, but it's worded very naturally. And it's important to have those because obviously that's going to be a huge factor moving forward. Um, But like you said, Tabs, this episode is just kind of like a breath of fresh air. We kind of get to Mm -hmm. like take a moment and just see them act like normal kids for once. So back at the school, this is actually at Torrance High School right now. Um, Cordy and Xander are looking up their results and Cordy got personal shopper or motivational speaker. (laughs) I was very surprised about the motivational speaker. I was like, what? There's no No, way. I actually think that's extremely accurate. How? Because Cordelia is a big personality and she's very influential to people. And I think that if she channeled that in the right way, she would be a good motivational speaker. I think that motivational speaker is kind of broad. You can motivate people, but it's not necessarily motivating them for the right reasons and in the right direction. Like, you can be motivating them, but you're motivating them for evil, too, yeah, you know? True. In the script, the whole um, scene where him and Cordy have the interaction and they find out about, like, their careers is not even in the script. Really? It, cut, it cuts straight to Xander coming up to Buffy and Willow and says, wouldn't you two say you know me as well as anyone? And then he goes in saying that he got, what was his? Uh, Correctional was officer. Got it. Yeah. Um, he told them that he got that result. I wonder if they went back and did like a reshoot because they needed more shots to fill up their time. Well, not only that, but like you see them later on go into the house together. So I feel like it would make sense that they would like talk beforehand because if we haven't seen Cordy the whole episode, it seems kind of odd that they're like, oh, have Cordy drive you. And then that's that is the only true. time we've seen Cordy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Once again, they did a good job of allocating screen time to everybody to make it make sense where their characters go by the end of the episode. Cordy looks up Xander's and runs away laughing. And we find out that Xander got prison guard. And Puffy's like, oh, at least you'll be on the right side of the bars. <laughs> I would not want to be a prison guard. That would suck. I feel like that'd just be the worst job. 
Um, Buffy got assigned to law enforcement, which makes so much sense. I feel like Buffy would be perfect for law enforcement. I think enforcement. the one that makes the most sense for her would be a freelance detective. I agree like, with that. Yeah. Because then she can do it less on her rules. own terms and less rules. Yep. Mm, yeah, that's true. But law enforcement, I think, is just more of the mainstream one. I right. think that they're not going to like put every single little like, yeah. thing on there. Yeah, this is the type of branch you would work best in. Although, to be fair, if they put personal shopper in, I would imagine they would have like a private eye in there or something too. But anyway. So then she's like, Giles is on his hyper-efficiency kick and you see Giles. I tried to count how many books he had. He had at least 17. I all know. piled high. <laughs> I was cracking up as he's like walking with them like stacked all the way up to his forehead. There's been several times where like someone will walk into the library and they'll be like talking about them and they won't notice they're there when they're like clearly facing the door or like the door swings open and it makes sound and then yet like Giles is surprised that Buffy is there. I'm like, come on, you guys. Like... It's obvious when people come into the library. I feel like you, I would know if someone came in, even if I wasn't looking. Or at there's the door. been multiple times where they'll be like talking about someone, and then they'll walk in the library, and the person who walks in doesn't hear them, even though it looks like an echoey room with like barely yeah. any space. And no one's in there, so it's like yeah. you could hear them. I think the difference with Giles is it's supposed to kind of show that Giles is so engrossed in his work that he just is like unaware of his surroundings and what's going on around him. So I can kind of understand it when it's Giles, but when yeah, it's anybody else, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, and then Willow asks Xander to check or she asked if he checked where she was assigned and he says she wasn't on the list, which we're all like, what? I love I love what they do with Willow's character. Like it makes so much sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. So the library. Marty Noxon said that they had a challenging time with this set because they're going to be talking a lot, and like Tony Head does a lot of exposition, and so they had trouble making it look interesting because there's really only two ways you can shoot in this library like facing the bookshelves or facing the door. And so they had trouble making all these angles look interesting. And so that's why they have all these books. And then you kind of have them shooting close up through the books mm. to make mm. it look a little bit more interesting than just head on. I I never even thought about that, but I really appreciate the detail that they go to and making it look interesting for the rest of us. Yeah, because there's not much you can do because we're always in the library. And like the Buffy sets there's like basically like four different spots that you can go to and they have to be creative with all of it. Yeah. And find new spots and new angles. Yeah. Which speaking of sets, I feel like this episode is really interesting because we see Angel's apartment, which we haven't seen since season mm-hmm. one. We go to Willie's place. We have the cargo hold. We Very have- different. Yeah. Yeah. We have multiple different sets that we've never seen before and it really makes the whole episode feel very full. So Giles says he's been indexing the Watcher Diaries over the last couple of centuries. It says you'd be amazed at how numbingly pompous and long-winded some of these Watchers were. And Bobby's like, color me stunned. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, wow, I'm so surprised. And Giles like doesn't pick up on it at all. He's like completely oblivious. <laughs> And Buffy tells Giles about the two vamps stealing from the crypt, and Giles berates Buffy for not finding out what, and Buffy tells him that if he doesn't like the way she does her job to find somebody else, oh, that's right, there can only be one. As long as I'm alive, there is no one else. And it's just like super clever way of kind of like reinforcing lore from the show that's going to be important moving forward. I just I think it's really interesting that they did that. 
And then we see Drusilla's bedroom. See, this is another set that's like one we haven't really seen a whole lot. Yeah. We saw this in school hard because they didn't want to go upstairs and socialize with the other vamps, which I was oh, like, yeah. that's so funny. <laughs> They're like just sitting there being like, I guess I got to go upstairs and talk to other people. It's like me at holidays. Yeah, um, they're like laying in bed, yeah. what we all do. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But like that, I think since then, I don't know if we've seen it. And I like the the setup in her bedroom, like with all of her dolls. And I feel like it sets up for some really like creepy and cool scenes. And so every time they show her bedroom, I get excited. Marty said that there's actually, like you mentioned the dolls, but you don't really see them a ton behind Spike. The set decorators actually tied little black gags around their mouths because they thought that'd be something Drusilla would uh-huh. do. I thought yeah, that was so cute. It. And she said that the set designers actually enjoyed adding little details to these sets, even though they knew they would never make it into the shot and no one would ever see them. They all felt very passionately that they wanted to make it as much like Drusilla as possible because they wanted to help Juliet Lando really like become more of her character. And also they felt like it would make the universe feel more cohesive and whole. Well, I was about to say, I was like, I feel like it's important to help the actors kind of get in the same headspace as their character. So I feel like having an atmosphere that really kind of shoves them into that place is so much more helpful to the actors. Because I can imagine there's got to be some days where you're just coming in and you're like, man, I'm really not feeling like Buffy today. I'm really not feeling like – I feel like it's hard to have like a full grasp on like a certain script for your character or like – um, trying to like grasp like their inner motives for certain scenes. So I feel like having an atmosphere that really like helps you get in the headspace has got to be so appreciated. Yeah. And I never thought about it before, but like Marty Noxon talks about how going down from the writer's room and walking through these sets was one of the mm-hmm. coolest things because you could look at all the little details that yeah. they put in there. Mm-hmm. And it feels like an, somebody actually lives in this room, like Drusilla inhabits this. And she says it's so cool from a writer's perspective because she wrote and designed these characters. And so then to that's see so cool. the places that they inhabit, I mean, that just must be really cool. So Spike and Drusilla have the golden cross and Drusilla says it hums. Dalton is worried about Buffy, says she almost blew everything. And Spike says she's the bloody thorn in my bloody side. <laughs> He's like the gristle between my teeth. They're like, okay, Spike, you're so dramatic. I think it's interesting that we're seeing this kind of – dynamic with Spike where like his love for Drusilla is almost being matched with his hatred for Buffy. Mm. Yeah, like we're just seeing him get like more and more outwardly angry and less of the chill kind of non-caring guy that we saw in the beginning. Um, I think he's just getting frustrated with himself, honestly. That's a really good point, Leah, especially because he's killed two slayers before. So we get the sense it's reinforcing that Buffy is very unique as a slayer and that he's becoming frustrated with that because he can't crack it. He doesn't understand what it is that makes Buffy. I think he understands a little bit that she has friends and family, but I think he's just frustrated that like he can't seem to touch her like he was able to do with the other two slayers. Mm -hmm. Um, So Spike's like, all right, we need to bring in the big guns and decides to bring in the Order of Taraka, the bounty hunters. Drusilla flips over the three tarot cards and we see a man with one eye with big ears and a beard and a bug-like creature and a leopard or jaguar. I don't know what it is. Something like that. And she says, they're coming to my party. (laughs) I love that. She's like dancing. Drusilla just like lives in her own little world. 
Um, so back at the school, Will is looking for Buffy and Xander says she went with Giles somewhere. And okay, Willow is afraid that Snyder is going to catch Buffy. So she purposely like draws his attention instead of like hiding from him. I just don't understand why she's like baiting him. Going out of her way to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Because then he's going to be like, oh, where's Buffy? Like, I don't know. I just feel like I would just purposely avoid him. Yeah, I don't understand. They're, all of them are not great liars. Although I will say I'm glad he's in the scene because what he says to Xander made me audibly laugh. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that is genius. For what it's worth, says Xander Snyder, it's worth nothing, Harris. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that he says it. Like, Whatever sounds come out of your mouth is a meaningless waste of breath. An airborne toxic event. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, you can just see like Xander just like sitting there and Snyder just seems a little bit more distracted than normal. But you could tell he was just like, I don't have time for this. Whereas Buffy. It's also just like so interesting to me. It's like, is Buffy never allowed to be like absent from school? Like (laughs) he just assumes she's up to Right. But it's also just like when I was in high school, granted, I went to private high school and it was years after the show was filmed but like when i went to high school we were allowed a certain amount of absent days and so it's like so funny to me that like anytime buffy is absent he's like where is she well unless she's absent a ton because in school hard i feel like there has to be some sort of record to make her sit in there and like be on the same level as sheila i feel like if if she's been gone a ton it makes sense that he would be like well where's Buffy because like we've already talked about this we've already I've already talked to her mom like it would make sense in my mind I feel like it could even be that she's gone she just leaves in the middle of the day too so Xander leaves because he has to go like talk to the parole officer (laughs) oh my word so funny and then Willow has two men in suits suddenly come up to her and they're like Willow Rosenberg Come with us. And they take her to the curtained off portion. They literally act like it's like a secret agent like mission. Like the fact that the music changes to when they go back in the curtains and it's like classical music and it's all fancy. I was like, oh, my gosh. If I was a first time watcher, though, I would have for sure thought these were the same people from out of sight, out of mind or out of mind, out of sight. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think it's funny it's so unrealistic that you wouldn't have teenagers literally trying to peek into the curtain to see what was behind them. And why'd they have to create that little fancy room for two, like, pubescent children? Like, they're not going <laughs> to notice that all this fancy food and wine glass and classical music is playing. They have, like, canopy and, like, I this know. guy in, like, a suit. And he's like, um, Mr. McCarthy is the head recruiter for the world's leading software company. He's like, his jet was delayed. And I was like, LOL, his jet was delayed. <laughs> I know. So bougie. I think it's interesting that he says they've been tracking Willow for some time because, like, Willow's hacked into some pretty extensive systems. I think she's hacked into, like, the police dispatcher. She got a notification when um, somebody – oh, from Teacher's Pet. Oh, no. <laughs> Teacher's Pet when uh, What's-His-Face never came home and his mom alerted the police. And she's, like, also, I think, hacked into the coroner's office and a few other things. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that they, like – we're somehow keeping tabs on her. But I have so many questions. Do they know that Buffy's the Slayer? Like, they've got to. If they know everything about Willow, then, like, I don't know. If I were them, I'd want to meet Buffy, too. Yeah, right? Exactly. If I, if I knew that she had yeah. superpowers, I'd be like, um, you can help mm-hmm. us. Okay, the way that this was, like, directed in this scene was really genius because I always forget that, like, Oz is sitting right behind her because they purposely have her walk in. And she's standing right in front of where you can see him sitting on the um, the seat. 
So I, like, I mean, I know that she would meet Oz in this episode, but like, as I first watched the scene, I'm like, oh yeah, they do that so that you can't see him and you kind of forget that he's already sitting there. Yeah. And the moment that like she comes and sits down, he's like scrutinizing the canopy and then he like almost drops and his jaw like goes down. Like this is the girl I've been looking for. And the only thing he says to her is canopy. (laughs) So cute. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And we're like, this is the moment. This is the moment. And then it like cuts. We're like, no. no. (laughs) Give us more Oz. And I like that we're extremely selective. Only one other student met our criteria. And it's Oz. And the fact that he's just like sitting there silently. And he's like not even paying attention. And then she like sits down next to him. And he's like, oh, shoot. She's here. Yeah, right. I just love his like his face. Seth Green is so good with his facial expressions. And just his body language is just really, it's great. It's perfect. It's just so fun to watch. So in the cemetery, it's really, really kind of jarring to look at the cemetery in the daylight. Like, it's really weird. Um, Marty Noxon says, the gates that both Buffy and Giles come through, those are the gates to enter into the lot. You can see, like, buildings and telephone poles past it. She says everyone has to drive in through that gate on their way to work every day. So they drive past the cemetery every single day. And she says it's really fun because some days she'll be like, ooh, what is it? Is it a cemetery today? Or is it Hmm. a playground today? Or I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. So Giles is running after Buffy. He begs her to slow down. Buffy's like, nope, Giles, we have work to do. Let's go. And Giles tells her she's behaving remarkably immature. And Buffy's like, it's because I am immature. I'm a teen. I have yet to mature. And I thought that was a really mm-hmm. clever line. And I think that Giles needs that reminder sometimes. I think it's good that he holds it to like a high standard. But I think that like sometimes he puts an unrealistic expectation on a 17-year-old. Or not even 17 yet. She's still 16. Well, I think that he also forgets that she is just 16 because she's very mature. Like, Buffy is way beyond her age. And so I think that he thinks that because she is who she is, that she can handle the way that he talks to her and the workload that he gives her. And I think that Buffy does a really good job of reminding him, like, hey, like, I'll work hard and I'll do what I can, but I'm also still a kid. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like – I think it was – absolutely within her right to say, I'm still a teen. I'm still immature. Like, yeah, it was, I really liked that she put him in his place. Um, And she says, Giles, you're being harsh and you're acting like I have a choice in the matter. And once again, Giles sees, he sees her role as more than that. He's like, it's a sacred duty. And I think this goes back to season one where Giles is like, why wouldn't you want this role? And I think it's because as watchers, I would imagine they are groomed from the beginning of like, this is a sacred duty and a calling and like, the Slayer is like the best thing ever and your job is to like help them. And so I think for Buffy and for someone who doesn't have a choice in the matter, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Yep. I love what she says. She says, it's one thing being a watcher and a librarian. They go together like chicken and another chicken, chicken <laughs> chickens or something. And then she says, you know what I'm saying? You can spend all your time with a bunch of books and no one blinks. But what can I do? Carve steaks for a nursery? People, I feel like people have underestimated Buffy not thinking about her future, not thinking about other scenarios. And it's like, clearly Buffy has to think about all this. If she didn't, she wouldn't be a good slayer. She wouldn't be like close with her friends. Like it would make a huge detriment in her life. And it's like... She is taking things responsibly. She's taking things very seriously. Like, and I think that 
I understand that Giles has to be hard on her, but I think he doesn't give her enough credit for what she's thinking about and going through. Yeah, absolutely. And he says, I must admit, I never really, and then he pauses and says, have you ever considered law enforcement? Which him saying he'd never really thought about it, I think once again, goes back to how watches are trained. I don't think they're trained to think about what happens if the Slayer lasts longer than, you know, two or three years in high school and stuff. Um, Yeah. So I think that little moments like this are really interesting because they're also showing that Giles is kind of learning right along with Buffy and that this is all new territory for him as well. Um, especially too, because their relationship is more father daughter, like than watcher slayer and dynamic. Mm-hmm. Also, they pass by a pond and Marty Noxon said the pond is fake as well. It lifts and rolls out. Oh my out. gosh. <laughs> yeah. I need to go back and watch yeah, that. Yeah. Everything is fake. It's just crazy. Um, and then Buffy gestures to the crypt and it's the same set as the one we saw initially in Welcome to the Hellmouth inside where they come down into the crypt. That's what I was going to say. I was like, it looked really familiar. Yeah. But I didn't, I, I didn't know if maybe it was like Yubes in a future episode. So I was like, oh, I don't know. So inside the crypt, Giles says it's a reliquary used to house items of religious significance, usually a body part from a saint. Ew. Ew. Yeah. And then he sees Giles starts to put two and two together, realizes that it's Dulac's tomb, and then makes the connection to the book that was stolen a few weeks ago. Um, he says the book contains rituals and spells. And the scene ends with Giles telling Buffy that something's coming and it's not good, which, I mean, when is something ever not coming? I feel um, like we've had so many apocalypses so far. Yeah, I've only right. been one apocalypse, but, like, I feel like it's, like, every week where he's like, oh, you really need to hone in this and, like, you need to be taking this seriously and blah, blah, blah. But, like, I feel like the fact that he's like, it's not good. But even he says, like, when they're kind of having a little high, lighthearted moment, he's like, oh, dear. And she's like, I hate when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> And then we see the bus station again, which we haven't seen the bus station in a little while. And it's from Los Angeles. Inca mummy girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Poor Ampada. Poor Ampada. I still feel bad for him every time. (laughs) Poor dude. He's like, I'm going to America. (laughs) (laughs) And he just gets killed. And and he like got killed in a bus station, no less. Like, (laughs) poor guy. And they were late picking him up too. Like, I know we talked about this on the actual episode, but the poor dude. What a way to go. Yeah, seriously. He's like all dry and like dirty and tired and (laughs) (laughs) spent like 25 hours on the plane and then. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But this bus is from Los Angeles, which I thought was funny because Joyce was there. So I wonder if like the Order of Traca like went there first and we're looking Hmm. for Joyce or if they came here. I don't know. It's just weird that it was specifically from LA. And then the big dude steps off. And then we see a salesman passing by the summer's house and then goes into the neighbor's house and is offering free samples. She invites him in and then we hear the screaming, which this is just really fun because you can tell it was shot in the actual location of the summer's house. So it's really fun to see like the neighborhood and what the house looks like on the outside. Mm -hmm. And then we see outside of the cargo area. Fun fact. So this cargo hold is a set. They built it. Can you guess where they built it? Where they built the cargo hold? Where like yeah. the cemetery is supposed to be? Yeah, in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, they built that cargo hold. And then what you can see outside the cargo hold is literally the parking lot again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep. And then she says they just bought stock footage of airplanes taking off in an airport and inserted right. that into Buffy. 
Um, and fun fact, so later on, this cargo hold was really, really expensive to make, but it was more expensive to rent a cargo hold at the airport and film there. So eventually what they ended up doing is they flipped the cargo hold set over upside down and then used it as a sewer set later on. Hmm. Isn't that cool? They had to be so versatile because they had such a small area to work with, but that's got to like take so long to set it up in the mornings, especially like I think it takes like what two weeks to film an episode. Mm-hmm. So it's like several days of setting up the same thing and then tearing yep. it down and then like also like having to film certain scenes out of order. That's got to be so hard for an actor to get in the same headspace knowing that certain things were supposed to have happened, but you're filming out of order, so you're supposed to get in that headspace, and, like, that's a lot to handle. Yeah, it's a lot of work that goes into it, yeah. a lot of behind the scenes that we just take for All granted. Those set people, yeah. Yep. Um, so the cargo worker hears a stowaway, and a girl knocks him out, and we see Bianca Lawson for the first time. And Bianca Lawson is probably – you. Everyone's probably seen her at some point. The girl yeah, has been in she's countless. Been, she's been playing a teenager for like 20 years. Yeah. yeah. The girl no, is just so well. She's so pretty. She's gorgeous. And I think she looks younger now than she did when she was on Buffy. Yeah. Literally. What the heck? Yeah. She's been on Dawson's Creek, Pretty Little Liars, Saved by the Bell, Teen Wolf, Vampire Diaries. Vampire Diaries. So many more that I can't even name. Um, but initially, Bianca Lawson auditioned for the role of Cordelia. Did you guys know oh, that? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yep. Well, because Joss wanted a person of color to play Cordelia. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was actually eyeing Bianca. And then when the network mm. said, no, we want someone who's white, if Bianca, he kind of kept her for a later role. That's He's done just that with like a lot of people. I, I mean, we haven't, I think we've mentioned it before, but we haven't really talked about it in depth. But like we love a lot of things about Buffy. Obviously, we have a whole podcast mm-hmm. about it. But the one area that, we really think that the show falls extremely short in mm-hmm. is showing diversity in their characters. Mm-hmm. And there's like a few characters that come up a little bit later in the show that are people of color, but it is very problematic. Yes, but it's also just very embarrassing that like a lot of all the main characters are people that are white and that even when the writer wanted a person of color, like the network said no and it's just like it's just very sad and it's very embarrassing honestly like it they just could have done so much better or also like her accent and we talked about this without recording it but so she came in and had like she had like researched and like really practiced on like a really authentic accent um and then they wanted her to change it because they wanted people to be able to recognize what she was saying. And so a lot of people crap on her, like, accent in the series. And, like, it's not the actress's fault at all. And I wish that we had a more um, authentic accent. I wish they had gone with the original one. Well, yeah, it's hard. Because, so her, she worked with a dialect coach who was mm-hmm. very 
good. And he wanted her to have a specific accent from a very specific providence in Jamaica. And he had it down and it was very authentic. And Bianca worked very hard on it. And then the day of, they were like, we can't understand what you're saying on camera because it's such a thick accent. So they gave her some sort of a hybrid between like an American slash Jamaican accent. And because of that, it just came off really weird. And Bianca herself hated the accent. Um, It would have just been better if they'd not given her an accent at all at that point or gone with maybe a more generic accent. Um, It's just really unfortunate that her dialect could have been a really cool way to like show her ethnicity and stuff. And instead it just kind of detracts from that and it makes it almost seem like a laughing stock. And so it's just, it wasn't necessarily intentional. And I think it's just a bummer all around. But I think if they brought somebody in who was maybe a little bit more, um, maybe the dialect coach, I don't know, or even somebody higher up, um, like Joss himself, who was like, hey, I can tell you that this isn't going to work because it seems like nobody worked with the dialect coach until the day of and then they saw what it was. If there had been more people that been like, hey, like, let's get, let's have an authentic accent. Like, let's have her from somewhere where we can like understand it clearly enough on television and that it, she doesn't lose her ethnicity. And um, it's also just like sad because it's like, let's be real, if – they wanted to give Buffy an accent or like one of the main cast an accent and they felt like the accent wasn't where they wanted it to be. They would have worked on it and perfected it or gotten rid of it altogether to make sure that it was where they wanted it to be. And so it just it feels like a slap in the face that they didn't yeah. give that same type of special yeah. treatment to Bianca that they did with all the other cast. It just didn't seem like clearly. Yeah, for how much like like a priority and for how much Mm -hmm. detail we've been talking about with the set, with all this other stuff, this feels like a huge oversight. And like the people who like are looking for representation and then they see something like this, it's gotta be like I don't know, like embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And Bianca is gorgeous. And the character that she portrays is strong and powerful. But that's overshadowed by her sounding really weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. I choose to kind of just like when I listen to her block it out and just like say in the universe of the show, I'm just going to say that it is actually accurate to wherever she was from because it is a supernatural show and not let that take away from my viewing of her role as Kendra, you know. But we wanted to mention that because I do think that that is like a huge problem in the show. Um, so back in the library, Giles says that Dulock was a theologian and a mathematician and made a Dulock cross. It was used to understand hidden meanings and text. Essentially, it was a decoder ring. Every single one was destroyed except for this one, <laughs> ironically. Giles says they have to stay late to research what was in the book. And Willow's like really excited. She's like, research party. <laughs> and Giles is like looking not at all excited. He's like rubbing his forehead. Um, Buffy says that she'll be back the next morning bright and early and both Giles and Xander do not understand they're like "Um, no you need to stay and help and Buffy gives Willow look like help me out here Willow and Willow's so sweet she says oh no Buffy you should go like conserve your strength and stuff and so like the guys can't argue with that logic I know she just like knows she like reads her BFFs love it I know. If I were Willow selfishly, I'd be like, no, you need to stay and stay up all night with me too. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I have to go through all this. Yeah. And then Buffy says, sorry, Zan, someplace I have to be, which I know we bash on Sandra a lot. So it's not to like bash on him, but it's super satisfying knowing that she's going to go on a date with, with Angel <laughs> and Xander doesn't even know. <laughs> so then the ice rink. Okay. 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 
I wanted to read this to you guys because I'm like super excited about it. So if you guys remember back in the dark age, how we have that beautiful moment where, um, or it's not beautiful moment, that beautifully shot moment where Giles is in his house and he's kind of in despair and he had just told Buffy that she needs to go away. And then I talked about how you can hear the theme song playing and it's kind of supposed to lead the viewer into the mindset uh, Giles needs Buffy and recognizes that he needs Buffy, but he's not wanting to drag her into this. And do you guys remember that scene where he's talking about all of that and then you hear the music kind of playing in the background? Mm-hmm. Okay. Vaguely. Just nod your head yeah, say yes. Yeah. Not all <laughs> okay. the time, but I do remember. Okay. So that the theme song actually plays in this moment again too, oh. but it's a much softer sound and I wanted to read it to you. And this is from the book, Music, Sound, and Silence in Buffy the Vampire Slayer says a more elaborate use of the theme in its reworking in a major key as a lyrical, wistful theme for Buffy as she waits for Angel at the Ice Rink in What's My Line Part 1. It accompanies her as she skates alone and as with the use of the reworked female-coded theme at the end of Prophecy Girl. Once again, the theme in this new form represents Buffy's dual roles as superhero and teenage girl by using the Nerf Herder theme in another female-coded version. The conflict between her two identities is never more clearly pointed than in this moment moment as both she and her music attempt to distance themselves from the heroic identity and yet the fact that she can never separate herself from this identity is underlined by the still being clearly recognizable as the same theme albeit seen from a different musical angle whether major or minor aggressive or lyrical it is still the theme that both identifies and defines Buffy the Vampire Slayer but I thought that was really cool and I love that there's moments like this because we have the theme play in all its glory at the end of Prophecy mm-hmm. Girl when Buffy's like totally BA about to go kill the master and oh, stuff. Oh, look, a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't even mistake him. <laughs> but it also comes again in this moment when Buffy is being equally herself. Mm-hmm. She's doing what she loves um, and she's being a normal girl. And I love that they they have the same theme playing just in a slightly different variation and it's, you know, major versus minor. It's just beautiful and I love it. I didn't even pick it up that it was – like the theme. But to be fair, I didn't really pick it up in the dark age either. I don't know what it is when it's like not when it's like slowed down. It's so hard for me to recognize. Well, and it's also like played with strings and you yeah. have like harp in there too. It's not, you know, the electric guitar that we're familiar with. Right. But yeah, when you guys go back and watch the episode, you'll have to like look for all of the fake cemetery parts and <laughs> the mm-hmm. warehouse and then the music. So creepy eye guy is watching Buffy, grabs her from behind, and vamp-faced Angel saves her. Um, Marty said that David actually does a fair amount of his own stunts, and this was one of those moments, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, And then I love that Buffy cleverly uses her skates to slice his neck. This is one of my biggest fears. I just like (laughs) – I I love ice skating. I like to think that I'm pretty decent because of all my years of rollerblading growing up. Um, But like (laughs) – like watching like a like blades of glory or like things like that like kind of like scares me when it comes to like slicing like your throat or something oh that just scares me but this episode i was like oh but she did on purpose which is good i'm just like scared of people like twirling and then accidentally like hurting somebody like watching like the olympics when they like twirl them around and do like crazy stunts where they're like so close to their head i'm like I just get so anxious. That's really funny. Well, Marty said that when she wrote this scene, she was like anticipating so much more blood. Like when she slices his neck, like yeah. the the white of the ice being covered with pools of blood. And they were like, um, Marty, we, we can't show that on here. And she's like, oh, <laughs> darn it. <laughs> um, 
And apparently there's footage out there of the crew all ice skating during the break, like between scenes. Everyone went out and ice skated. Um, She also said that they wrote this scene specifically because they wanted Kendra to see Angel kissing Buffy and Vamp face so that she would try to kill him. And then after they wrote it, they realized that they had a really great character moment and decided Mm -hmm. to write in the afterthought of Buffy talking about kissing Angel and Vamp face and how like big of a moment that was for them. And I thought that was so interesting because how it shows on screen is it seems like a really great character moment and then Kendra coming in as an afterthought. But, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up, Sarah, because it's not even in the script. That whole dialogue, that whole scene, it just said uh, the last thing is like she like cuts his neck and she says whatever happened to Fat and Jolly. And then it like goes off and you see, I think, I don't know if it says that they start kissing. Uh, No, it doesn't. That's weird that they added all of that. Yeah, they added all of that in when they realized, hey, we have an opportunity for a really good character moment where she kisses Angel in his vamp face, which Mm -hmm. she's never done before, you know? I'm so glad they did that. Yeah, me too. I mean, and once again, we have, you know, well, first, Drusilla flips over the first card and says that he has passed under their feet. um, And then Angel recognizes the ring as, you know, one of the three and tells Buffy to go home and get someplace safe. And Buffy's doesn't even care about herself. She's worried about the cut on his eye. And Angel just keeps looking away and doesn't want her to touch him. Mm -hmm. And he says, you shouldn't have to touch me when I'm like this. And she says, oh, and then she takes off her mitten. I didn't even notice. (gasps) I like that she takes off her mitten because she touches like his bumps, like with her actual fingers, not Mm -hmm. just like with a glove. It's like a lot more personal, like that she's like affirming him. She just affirms him in so many ways where he's insecure in this episode. And it's just such a cute Angel episode. I love it. It's It's just like very innocent. And just like the fact that Buffy was like, I didn't even notice. Like, and I don't even think it's her saying that to try and like be smooth or anything. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's legitimately like she doesn't see Angel as anything more than himself. So it's like no matter what, like when she's looking at him, she just sees Angel. Yep. And he's always so insecure about like his like actual demon living inside him and that she sees him like that. And he's so tormented by his past self. And I feel like this is just so symbolic of just like people who have gone through stuff in the past where they're just so nervous that somebody's only going to see them for their mistakes. And like in this moment where he's like his demon is physically present to her. And she doesn't even notice. It's just so sweet. It's like when you're in a relationship and somebody is like, I don't choose to see you like that. I choose to see you for who you are now. And it's just so precious. Well, and I think when you're in a healthy relationship and you see someone's faults, you're still able to say, I see you and I love you for it. Yeah. You know, um, we want people to grow and we want people to change. But I, this is such a beautiful picture of being fully seen and accepted in a relationship. And it's very healthy. And it's just really innocent and pure and intimate too. Like you just really get the feeling that Buffy cares deeply for this man. um, And that he cares for her too, because I think deep down he wants her to have, um, I think deep down he feels like he isn't worthy of her and that he doesn't deserve her. And so I think that he wants the best for her. And so when she sees his vampire face, he feels just ashamed. And, And I wanted to point out too that like, this is such a contrast to the episode Angel in season one. And Darla taunts Angel. She says, Angel, what did you think? Did you think she would look at your face, your true face, and give you a kiss? 
and, and she then, did. And she did. She not only looked at his true face, she touched it and she kissed it. Like, oh, so beautiful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I know we talked about it in the spoiler version of Angel. And mm-hmm. I like, I was like, oh, I need to talk about it when we talk about what's my line. So I'm glad you brought it up. And then Kendra sees them kissing. Um, and in case for those of you who like to go to all the Buffy spots they shot everything at, this ice rink is at 8041 Jackson Street in Paramount, California. It's called Iceland. So go check it out. <laughs> oh, and fun fact, Julie Benz, who plays Darla, who was apparently one of the top rated skaters in the United States. Isn't what? that crazy? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Right. Yep. Apparently, Angel has a type. Just kidding. Giles sees the ring and says it belongs to the Order of Taraka. Their credo is to sow discord and kill the unwary, which I feel like this sounds a lot like Ethan, who likes to create chaos. Mm. And then we find out that some of them are human. So I wonder if Ethan is secretly an Order of Taraka. I don't know. That's my headcanon. Giles snaps at Xander and says, this is not the time for jokes. I know. I was watching in the whole episode, and before he snaps at him – because, like, you can make the argument of, like, okay, Giles is going too hard on Xander in this moment. But if you notice, there's a few times and a few scenes before this one where Xander had been making just inappropriately timed jokes. Yeah. And, like, you could see Giles, like, ignoring it. And then this was just kind of the culmination of that. Like, and so it was just very interesting to see Giles just kind of, like, snap finally at Xander. Yeah. Um, and it also kind of shows that Giles is taking this extremely seriously. And it's kind of, and Buffy mentions this, but both Angel and Giles are both like, no, Buffy, you need to go run and go hide. And neither mm-hmm. of them are normally like that at all. And then Buffy's like, okay, you both have now told me you want me to hide. What is so bad about these people? Mm-hmm. And Giles says, unlike vampires, they have no earthly desires but to collect their bounty. They find a target and they eliminate it. You can kill as many of them as you like and it won't make a difference. Where there's one, there will be another and another. And I thought this was an interesting mirror of slayers. Like, they just keep coming. Like, there's no way to stop them. Um, but I guess unlike slayers who have earthly desires – um, or I guess slayers are not really supposed to have earthly desires. I don't know. It's just it was an interesting the way he worded it. He says they won't stop coming until the job is done. Each one of them works alone with his own way. Some are human, some are not. You won't know who they are until they strike. And this is just incredibly eerie because as he's saying this, it's a voiceover, and you're watching like the bug man watching Buffy's room, and you see like mm-hmm. the worms crawling over the dead neighbor's mm-hmm. body. So creepy. <laughs> Yeah. I know this like voiceover was genius with what happened. He's like, some of them will look human, but they're not. And then as he's saying that, he has like the bugs reforming his hand. Oh my goodness. Apparently, okay, these are stunt worms. So they're actual worms. And I believe it. They look real. Marty Noxon said she had to like go and like talk to the handler and make sure that they weren't going to like harm any of them. But they're literally called stunt worms. It's just crazy to me that they have to have like animals to do stunt work uh, just how do you train a worm i don't know <laughs> i know <laughs> and there's like hundreds of them yeah too. how do you train like hundreds of worms like, <laughs> all right this one's freddie this one's charlie <laughs> 
So in the school hallway, Buffy is jumpy and suspicious of everyone. Did you guys notice when Buffy's in the hallway and that guy like passes by and he like reaches into his vest and you're like, oh no, he's going to pull out a knife or a gun and it's like a comb and just like combs his hair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The poor girl looks so nervous walking around. I think it was so cool how they had like the heartbeat kind of overlaying Mm -hmm. as she was like walking Mm -hmm. to kind of just like show that she's like narrowed in on that one thought. Yeah, and it's also crazy that she's so scared in her own school. Like, normally we don't see her. Like, she's – and I think it's also a picture, too, to show how alone Buffy feels. She's surrounded by people everywhere, but she feels incredibly isolated and alone. And, like, she can't trust anyone. Yep. Okay, this scene. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I crack up so much. Like, Like, okay, we know when you watch something so much that it doesn't become funny to you anymore. But there are some certain scenes, like in Halloween, where like Willow scares Giles and he throws the index cards. I die laughing every time. But this scene, I just Seth Green plays it so well, where he's like so like concerned, but he's it's so nonchalant. He's just kind of like try what like he just doesn't he doesn't get mad like this girl's pitting him against the wall with his throat and he's like not even angry he's just kind of curious he's like man such a tightly wound girl yeah she Whereas walks away and he's like so god mad. is a tense person I know. <laughs> he just doesn't even care it's even better knowing that seth green and sarah michelle geller have known know. each other since they were like five or six it's just funny watching that so cute yeah, knowing that they're like BFFs in real life. So but cute. I, it just shows like how good of a guy he is because like I would not handle in the same way. I'd be like, girl, get off of me. I'd like kick her. He doesn't even try to he fight back. He just sits there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's so chill. He's like the very opposite of Buffy who's like tightly wound and he's over there just like, well, that's a tense person. Moves on I with know. his day. <laughs> just moves on. Yeah. Never thinks about it again. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> So then back on the street, Buffy's walking home. And I thought it was interesting. Did you guys know she was icing her knee in the library earlier? Yeah. And she's kind yeah. of walking with a limp. Yeah. She, she sees her dark house and doesn't feel safe, which we were all like, phew, good job, Buffy. Way to follow your instincts. Um, and back in the library, Willow says that she's never seen Buffy that freaked. Um, and Xander says that she didn't go home. Her phone rang a few hundred times. And Charles is like, well, maybe she unplugged her phone. And Xander's like, it's a statistical impossibility for a 16-year-old girl to unplug her phone. Which is actually pretty fair. Right. Well, Charles looks at Willow like, do you believe this? And Willow like nods pretty emphatically. Yeah. She's like, yep, that's very true. They said they've never seen Buffy this freaked though. But I kept thinking like, wasn't Prophecy Girl pretty freaked? Like, what's the line that they're trying to decipher between those two yeah i don't know and i also thought like why did buffy leave the library and go home by herself well i, don't I know. think that she's like one i don't think she's thinking rationally but two i think she also doesn't want to put anyone else in danger mm. like i think that she would have gone home but she's scared for her life she would have stayed in the library but she's scared for her friend's life so she goes to the one place where she knows like angel can handle himself but he can also protect her mm. yeah um, Marty Noxon talks about this moment. Well, first of all, she says the stairwell that Buffy goes down to get into Angel's house is a set. They built that. They built those stairs. They built like the entry into the basement and everything. So like all these new set pieces they're having to build just for this one episode. It's crazy. Um, and then she said it was really interesting them building the set for Angel's 
apartment because like she's like a lot of the pictures are from like the 1800s. They wanted to kind of show Angel's history and how long he's lived and that he's collected artwork and things from his travels. Well, I was about to say, I was like, I should really like the way that he like um, set up his apartment. It seems a lot more like nicely done that I think Angel would like try to make it look. <laughs> but I feel like well, I mean, been, when you've lived been for around years, forever, yeah. yeah. You yeah. pick up some things where you're like, oh, this will look nice and make it look at least decent. Because I feel like before Buffy, that's where he like lived like 99% of the time. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting because he like the way that it's decorated doesn't look like a 17-year-old guy. And so it's another indicator that he's lived for a very long time and he's yeah. kind of well-traveled. But Buffy knocks, Angel's not home. And I think this is the first time we've seen Buffy in Angel's apartment or in his house. What is this even? Like, you know, he lives in a basement. He's like renting, subletting, hiding. I was wondering, I was like, is he like renting or is he just kind of like stowing away? I have no clue. But yeah, wherever he's living, his little like tiny room. Well, and it's funny too, because I was like, where's his kitchen? And I was like, oh, he doesn't need a kitchen. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And then Marty says that they purposely wrote for Joyce to be out of town to show how isolated and vulnerable Buffy is, specifically for this moment. From what we can tell of this moment, I'm fairly certain that this is the first time Buffy's been to Angel's place simply by the way that she looks around at the stuff like she's never seen it before. But I mean, she would have needed to know where he lived. And so I think that this is just the first extensive time that she's been there like i'm sure she's probably been there before like to maybe like go see angel for a second or something because she would have had to have been there at some point not necessarily he could have written down her address and then she would have just gone there you know like that back in the 90s when he didn't have you know gps or anything it's quite possible that you know she knew roughly where he lived but had never actually been inside but anyway yeah either way this is the first time we've seen buffy in angel's apartment basement, whatever it's called, his home. Um, and then Willie's place. Again, this is a new set. Marty said that she specifically wrote this. Like Willie was a character that she came up with that she's very proud of. Mm. And Marty wanted Willie to kind of show that there are low life people who profit and benefit off of the villains and vampires Smart. in Sunnydale. Mm. Yeah. Because we've only ever seen people at Sunnydale who kind of ignore it. So I'm like, it'd be unrealistic for everyone to ignore it. There has to be some people who are benefiting off of it or kind of who know and are scared or like, I wish we had seen more of that. Like people who were like, who know and who are scared and um, who kind of like read up on it. But I'm glad that they like decided to have someone like Willie who like has like a bar for all of like the demon people and like kind of benefits off of it, which is like really genius in my I opinion. thought it was really interesting seeing Angel like this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Where he's very like almost cold in a way. Um, but you can tell he's just extremely motivated by the fact that like he needs to protect his girlfriend. Yeah. And so it's like it's sweet seeing him like care so much about Buffy, but then you're also like, oh my gosh, like that's terrifying. Yeah. Well, yeah, we haven't met Angelus. We've only heard about him. But in this moment, it was a little terrifying with him being back, kind of backlit and he's standing in the shadow. And yeah. Willie says, oh, Angel, I didn't recognize you in the shadows so he there. Knows him. Yeah. And then he steps out and he like has a very different look on his face. And I think it's exactly what you said, Leah. He knows Buffy's life is in danger and it's a very real threat. And so I think that he's kind of putting his game face on. I mean, he 
asks for information and Willie just kind of dances around it. And Angel slams his face onto the counter and says, you know, I'm a little rusty when it comes to killing humans. It could take a while, which I we've never seen Angel like this before. Yes, this is new. Terrifying. And so he forces Willie to say that Spike and Drusilla sent the Taraka and almost gets him to tell him where they are. Um, located when Angel gets hit really hard in the face. Um, and then we see the girl from the plane break the wooden stick into two pieces and fight him. And she actually like wails on him and beats him up pretty badly. Like he can barely get a hit in. I think part of it is because she stunned him so mm. badly. Um, she pushes him into a cage and locks the door. Um, and then she says, that girl, the one I saw you with before and – he refuses to give up Buffy, which is like, good for you, Angel. I know. She tells him the sun will be coming up soon and that she has more than enough time to find Buffy and locks the door, which Marty fully recognizes that that lock probably would not actually hold Angel in yeah. real life, but suspension yeah. of disbelief. <laughs> so back in the library, Jazz has been up all night, calls Xander and tells him to go swing by Buffy's house. And he's like, I don't know, get Cordy to drive you. <laughs> I like, isn't this like the third time that she's been like roped into like driving the Scoobies? Well, it's because she's around. like the only one who has like a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, I can only imagine her being like, oh, Sandra, you need me to drive you again. And maybe I just all wonder pissy like how it. they get her to do it. Like, yeah. even I would be annoyed at that point. Like, <laughs> I don't yeah. understand how she keeps doing it. <laughs> and she doesn't even like them that much. I think it's funny because her outfit totally looks like it's a Saturday morning and she got up and just like threw something on to go drive him to the summer's home. I feel like it was one of those like, okay, I'm going to do this one stop, going to take you back home and then I'm going to go do some tennis with my daddy. Like, yeah, it looks like a tennis outfit. I, <laughs> yeah. I have Saturday plans. Yeah. Or she's like, I'll take you, Xander, but we have to get a Starbucks before we get there. Or yeah. like that she was already doing something and then had to like quit her plans last minute. Yeah, it totally looks like she was going to go out grocery shopping or was out for a jog or something. It definitely isn't, you know, what she normally wears to school. Yeah. This this part is so sweet because Willow's fallen asleep at the computer and Giles looks very harried. Like the way he's running around, he looks so stressed. And then he kind of stops and sees Willow and very like gently like approaches her and just like kind of shakes her awake and it's like, Willow, Willow. And like she wakes up and she's like, don't warn the tadpoles. And then she's like, Giles? What are you doing here? She thinks he's in her room. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I love how she goes, I have a frog fear. Yeah. Me too, girl. Me too. <laughs> I hate frogs. Like, I could probably handle tarantula. I mean, I wouldn't like it. But, like, if someone, if I had to hold one, I'd be like, ew, I don't like this. But, like, I could do it. But, like, I can't, I can't stand frogs. I can't do it. Like, I literally could not hold it. Well, it's a little weird because I think it was in um, The Witch I don't remember which one it was, but like we see Willow like pulling the eye out of the frog or something when they were doing that experiment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what was up with that. Maybe she's okay with them when they're dead. Ew. Anyway, okay, let's not talk about that. (laughs) So then Giles tells Willow that he has found a description of the Duloc manuscript and it's a ritual. He believes the purpose is to restore the weak and sick vampire Drusilla back to health. So they make the connection that, oh, they're trying to get Drusilla better. So then at the warehouse, I didn't know this, but Marty Noxon said technically Drusilla and Spike are living in a meatpacking factory, which I have not seen oh. anything hmm. to show that. But yeah. So Dalton finishes the translation. Drusilla has, this is like the first time I noticed all those bruises on her arms and she looks incredibly yeah, weak. At this point, we see her not leaving her bed. 
And she says, it was right in front of us the whole time. And they look down at the card on her lap. And they, you see it's an angel. And then I love the music. You hear like a chorus of angels over or like a chorus of people singing like <laughs> over Drusilla's like creepy music. It's really weird. At Buffy's house, Cordelia, what am I, mass transportation? Xander, I know. well, that's what a lot of the guys say, but it's just locker room talk, oh, <laughs> which I did a horrible Xander, thing no. to say, but it was really funny. <laughs> I hate that joke. That's so like... Yeah, it's a it's an awful thing to say to someone. I the thing that makes it funny to me is that Cordelia doesn't even bat an eye. She just like responds right back to him. Like their barbs just keep getting more and more painful and like biting, and yet neither one of them flinches each time. I think time. it's just because like Cordelia doesn't respect Xander, so she doesn't really care what he has to say. Yeah. I thought it was kind of sweet, though, what he says after that. He says, come on, Cordy, you can't be a member of the Scooby gang if you aren't willing to be inconvenienced now and then. But he says, like, like kind of like saying that she is basically a part of the Scooby gang, which I yeah. think was kind of really sweet. This is the first time that they actually refer to themselves as the Scooby gang. Yeah, uh -huh. I wrote that down as well. Sorry, everybody. Another thing that we have been saying <laughs> the entire show and then forgot. Oh, well. <laughs> We're the worst at this. I love that he said, I think of you as more of my witless foil, but have it your way, because I really believe Cordelia is written to be Xander's foil, like the way that they go at it and the way that they kind of complement and also antagonize each other. Like they're really good foils for each other. And I wrote that Cordy hits home when she says that Xander's just the lame guy while Buffy's the super chick. And Xander mm -hmm. says, at least I'm the lamest who cares, which is more than I can mm -hmm. say for you. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like this is really accurate because I do think Cordelia tends to be kind of self-centered. And so I think that sh this is her trying to care. I think she is trying to get out I of mean, herself. I mean, the fact that she's driving them is a little bit of growth. Right, but we yeah. also saw an out of mind, out of sight that Cordelia wants friends, and she wants friends with substance, and so I think she senses that she'll get that in the Scooby gang. I think gang. it's funny that even though they're not at Cordelia's house, the minute she hears free samples, she's like, sure, come in. Yeah, and it's not even, even though her it's house. not her house. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what if it was a vampire? I mean, this case is not, but like, she well, just inspired the day. Oh, that's true. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, he's like, have you guys seen that thing where the vampire's like, do you have a moment to hear about our Lord and Savior Jesus oh gosh, Christ? Yes. So <laughs> or even funny. the one where they're like, um, you know, we want to talk about the painful stigmas of vampires. Can may we come in to talk with you more about it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this is interesting because you can tell even before Marty said it, that this is the actual house simply because of the stairs. You can always tell whether it's the set versus the real house because when you can see the upstairs, it's the real house. When it's just a wall, then it's the set going upstairs. Mm -hmm. And so in this one, you can tell it's the actual house. And it's kind of crazy because after this episode, they actually built the soundstage and pretty much, I mean, most of the instances inside the house are a set. This is one of the last times you see the actual house, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, there's the knock on the door. Creepy bug man is there. Cordelia invites a stranger into not her oh, house. Cordy. And it's almost mirror for mirror, like the exact same shot from the beginning. And it zooms in and you're left with the cliffhanger of, does Cordelia die? Yep. So at Willie's place, Angel is still trying to break out. The sun is starting to come through. And Angel is literally sweating bullet not literally sweating bullets, but he's like sweating <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's another vampire funny. superpower. <laughs> <laughs> All these like bullets flying out. That'd be really like convenient though. 
Yeah, shoots the In lock. Case, Whew, yeah. There you go. <laughs> able to get out. <laughs> and then at Angel's house, Buffy wakes up and the smile on her face, she looks like she had like a really restful night of sleep. She's all content. Uh, until she finds that Kendra is trying to stab her with like, what is it, a hatchet? Such a random weapon. Up? Could you imagine? No. Just like, you're like, all right, dies. All right, next layer. <laughs> <laughs> And she flips off the bed, grabs the curtains, and throws them over Kendra. And their fighting style, I noted, is incredibly similar. And that's yeah, something- that's what I noticed too. It's very calculated. Yeah, but it's also very like acrobatic. Like they do flips, they hand to hand combat. Like it's just very, very similar in fighting style. And Buffy's like, don't make me do the chick fight thing. And Kendra's like, chick fight. And she like digs her nails into her hand, yeah. <laughs> pulls her hair. Yep. I would have gone for her earrings. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, why'd you say that, Tabby? My ears hurt. Hey, she had dangly earrings. It's perfect. I know. You don't need to say anymore. I don't need to hear it. La, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so the episode ends with Kendra saying, who are you to Buffy? And Buffy's like, who am I? You attacked me. And this totally like reminds me of like when someone calls you on the phone and they're like, who is this? And you're like, who yeah. is this? You called me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you guys ever done that before? What? Have you guys ever done that before on the phone? <laughs> I have. What do you mean? When I was like in junior high, like it was like one of the first times mom and dad had me call someone for something. I don't remember what it was, but I remember who it was. I'm not going to say on here because that'd be weird. They don't have no idea who it is. But I think it was for like some like camp that I was supposed to go to. And so I had to, I had to call and like figure out like financial stuff maybe. And then I was like so nervous. I had like never called an adult before in my life. And I remember being like, like, who is this? When I had like literally went yeah. to call them. <laughs> so and rude. they were like, uh, like, they're this person. Who is this? <laughs> and I got so awkward. I don't remember what I said after that. <laughs> it's. I always remember how rude it is after I asked them who it is. And I was like, oh, wait, I called them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, so the episode ends with her saying, I'm Kendra the Vampire Slayer. And oh, my gosh. What a way Plot to end twist. an episode. Yep, like, yeah. And we'll find out the next episode what that really looks like. What it means. What does mm-hmm. it mean? Could you imagine when this aired? I would have been like, holy crap. Yeah, like I need to see episode. it now. Yes, exactly. Um, when I showed my sister-in-law, Abby, the show for the first time, this was the moment that I was like, this has got to be the first like – mind-blowing reveal like Mm -hmm. cliffhanger Mm because i feel like angel is not as big of a reveal him being a vampire yeah but this moment is like what the heck because it could potentially change the entirety of the show i mean we've been told there's only one slayer one slayer and this entire episode is buffy talking about how she has no hope for a future because she's the Mm -hmm. only slayer like what if there's more than one so fascinating i'm excited for part two this is so good me too did they have to wait a whole week for part two or was it back to back no they had to wait a whole week oh dang yep thank goodness for streaming i know so i say as wandavision i'm over here like (laughs) waiting for the next episode (laughs) so anyway guys that is what's my line part one the spoiler free section we will be having the spoiler section next week and you will definitely want to listen in because there's some pretty cool stuff to talk about Uh, And yeah, you guys 
let us know what you love about this episode. And also let us know maybe the first time you ever watched the series and what you thought when Kendra was revealed. Um, you guys can find us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast, or you can email us at Becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. Ugh, there's so much good stuff. But yeah, let us know and we will see you guys next time. <laughs>